John has a peculiar knack for being convicting. He has an odd way of saying things so that they convict and pierce. And oftentimes the things he says scare us. His statements can feel very stark and very blunt. And it's ironic that a book or a letter written to fill up our joy, to assure us of God's love for us and assure us of our belonging for so many people seems to rob joy, bring undue conviction at times. And I've heard from several of you in the past, not during the sermon series, but over the years, that First John is a letter that has a peculiar knack for robbing your assurance. Because John speaks very bluntly, very plainly, about our relationship now to sin as those who have been born again by the love of God, by the work of Christ, and by the ministry of the Spirit. And so when he says, no real Christian goes on sinning, we wince. And when we get to passages like this that should be refreshing to us, and he starts to peel away a proper diagnosis of what Christian love looks like, And he says that no one who hates is born of God. And anyone who doesn't love but claims to know God is self-deceived and a hypocrite. When he explains these things to us, we feel our assurance melt away, often. We often mistake them to be John holding out to us the ways that we can earn or buy God's love. If you are loving enough, God will love you back. If you will do these things, if you will forge this antagonistic relationship against your sin, if you will work hard enough at loving in these ways, then God will love you. Then God will be kind to you. Then all of these promises will be yours. That's not what John is saying. But he is saying very blatantly, very bluntly and plainly, You cannot just do whatever you want, label it loving, and call yourself a Christian. You cannot do whatever you want, slap a name tag on it that reads holiness, and say, see, I'm born of God. You cannot look at the church around you. You cannot look at sin that you hide and cherish. You cannot look at broken relationships around you and say, inwardly, secretly, in places that you can't see, I have deep, warm feelings about God, and so I'm good. John is trying to take both of those things away, but he is not trying to rob you of your assurance. He's trying to build out and bolster your assurance. In all of these things, he's not trying to add a heavy weight to you and a burden to carry around. He told you at the very beginning of the letter, I'm writing these things so that your joy will be complete and filled up. The difference is that John is writing things that work for us like a diagnostic, not a how-to manual. So think about the things in your house that measure or regulate temperature. 
When your kids have a fever, you get a thermometer and you check their temperature, but the thermometer has no ability to bring the fever down. It can't change their temperature. It just reads it and tells you what is. And most of you, I assume, some, in some wall in your house have a thermostat. In the summer, you keep it cranked down. And you trust that thing not only to read the ambient temperature in the air, but actually to turn on your air conditioning and try to affect the temperature in the air to keep you comfortable. One of those things is diagnostic, and one of them is effective. John is saying that love is both, but that we need to be careful in the ways that we talk about which side is diagnostic and what it actually affects. If I lose you in the middle of the sermon, let me give you this caveat on the front end. We do not love in order to affect God's love for us. We do not love in order to earn our right to belong to Him or to have belonging in a place in the church. His love for us is the effective love. His love affects and changes us. His love makes us loving. And then our love, because of Him, becomes active and effective in that it works to actively do good for others, real good, with real compassion and real affection. But our love does not affect His love for us. It's the result. He has loved us, and His love changes us to make us loving. And it changes us so that we love more and more the way that He loves And so this morning, as we walk through this passage, we're going to see three different hows answered. How does God define love? How does God's love work? And how does love fill out our redemption? How is love defined? How does love work? How does love fill out our redemption? John's notion of filling things out runs throughout his entire letter. Whether he uses the word full, whether he uses the word complete, whether he uses the word perfect, he has used the idea of fullness in the sense that things come to us in God's love and grace complete and full as is. And he's also used the idea of fullness to tell us that there are things that God's love fills up and fills out in us as he grows us in the gospel. But all through his letter, he has couched just about every theme in the idea of fullness. God's love is never partial. The work of the Spirit is never half-hearted. It's never poorly planned. Jesus' love for us, the work of the Spirit and the intentions of the Father are always full they will always have their full effect in people. And so there are things that we encounter in the gospel that come to us complete and full, like the finished work of Christ. Like we sang this morning that Jesus paid it all. He has already paid it all. His payment for our sin is already complete. And so our rest and forgiveness and belonging because of Him are complete. 
But then there's the ongoing work of the Spirit in us as He changes us and fills up the way that the gospel takes root in us, in us and changes us. And those things are continually filled out. But not just when we get to them, not just for as long as we have endurance to do them. John is holding out to us the good news that God's love is perfect and full. And whether we find ourselves in the middle of the transition and the transformation, where, by the way, all of us find ourselves on this side of glorification, whether we find ourselves there or look back on it in eternity from a point where we are resurrected and can see the fullness of our redemption, God's love for His people will always end completed. He is always moving all of us to fullness in Himself. And that's not just true for us, that is true for the ways that God has entered into our world, invaded our lives, and loved us. And so John, throughout his entire letter, has defined the gospel for us in terms of fullness. Those things that because of Jesus' finished work and because of the Spirit's ongoing work are already complete or are in process of being filled up to completion in us. So he opens the letter with a description of the full incarnation. In 1 John 1, Christ is fully God and fully man, and he fully walked with us. He was fully in flesh with us. Believing and holding on to that gives us not partial but full fellowship with God himself, with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and full fellowship with the church. John says that he's writing all of this to us, both that little piece and introduction and the rest of the letter, so that our joy would be complete, that our joy would be full. And he goes on to explain that in Christ, in 1 John 1, 9, we have full forgiveness and full cleansing. If we confess that he is... If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2 starts the convicting portions for most of us. But it's His description of full salvation. Anyone who says he knows Him will end up keeping all of His commandments. There's a full obedience in 2.6, whoever says he knows him will walk in the way that he walked. We will live more and more like Jesus. We will follow in his footsteps. That is the picture of full discipleship. In 2.12, he has the portion of the letter that you already know where he addresses the church as little children and then he breaks up Christians on a spectrum of maturity, addressing fathers and young men and talks about what it looks like for us to grow up in Jesus together. He pictures for us a full maturity. At the end of that section, he has, he has a section where he has to deal with the alarm in the church as people start leaving to find false teachers and false notions and false saviors because they preach a false gospel. And he says, while people leave in 2.19, those who are truly changed by the gospel are irrevocably his. The belonging of the gospel is a full belonging. He goes on to say, I'm writing that you would know the truth because the real truth is unmixed with any deception or false teaching. There's a full truth to the gospel, an unhidden, fully public truth. He describes those who love God, loving Him in fullness with a full picture of who God is, owning 
God on his own terms in the mystery of the Trinity, not able to have the Father without the Son. He holds out a full promise of eternal life in 2.25. Throughout the book, but especially in the section at the end of chapter 2, he talks about our full confidence in the face of those who try to deceive you, who try to lead you astray, in the face of all the deceptions of your own sin, do not be deceived. Have a full confidence with Jesus now, and you will have a full confidence with Jesus at His return. Maybe the most convicting portion of the book comes in chapter 3. Thankfully, John Berger preached that, not me. But it's the convicting passage where he says that righteousness not only changes your status and justification, it takes root in who you are and and how you live so that Christians look a certain way. They have a certain relationship to sin. What he describes for us is a full righteousness, the righteousness of Christ fully for us in justification, taking root and fully forming us in our lives in sanctification. So John has held out for us a full faith and a full incarnation for a full salvation with full fellowship, full joy, full forgiveness, full cleansing, full obedience, full discipleship, towards a full maturity with full belonging, grounded in a full truth, worshiping with a full picture of God, resting in a full promise for full life, assured with a full confidence, changed to resemble and live in and grow into a full righteousness. And when he gets to the end of chapter 3, and when he gets to the middle section of chapter 4 that I read, John says this full transformation of us as people digs down deep into our nature and character, and it makes us fully loving. But that full picture of love cannot be on our own terms. The fullness of God's love for us and the fullness of love that is born, created, nurtured, and grown in us is magnificent. But it is not self-determined. Through this entire passage, both of these passages, John is saying to us, you wouldn't know love on your own. You cannot invent the way that God's love looks And you cannot define for yourself how you will love apart from God teaching you what love actually is, what it actually does. Not just teaching you, but giving you His love to take up residence in your heart and in your life to invade your relationships. And so it's not a very pleasant thought for many of us when we talk about love. It's not the easy sales pitch for love. But love is on God's terms, not ours. As much as we like the idea of being unfettered, spontaneously free agents to do whatever we want, whenever we want, and however we want, love is not up for grabs. And for whatever reason, we often mistake it as the most nebulous, most abstract most freely defined thing there is. I can do the things that I think are best in the ways that make me happiest and make me feel warmest inside, and I will call that love, and it must be. 
And John holds out for us the full goodness that in God's kindness and grace for us, we are set free to love. We are remade and we are reborn for love. But that love has a particular shape. It has a particular action. It has a particular cost. And in all of those things, please hear me say, there is a much fuller satisfaction. God's love is better than anything we would imagine for ourselves. Even in all of the difficulty and all of the personal cost of love between us and each other, Godly love is more satisfying than the love we would craft for ourselves. And so when John says that God is love, this becomes one of the most popular verses in the Bible. Because what Sinful, twisted people want to read in that verse. And when I say sinful, twisted people, I don't mean people outside the church. I mean inside and outside the church. What my twisted heart, what your twisted heart, what everyone's twisted heart wants to do with that verse is say, if God is love, then whatever I define as love must be godly. And that is not what John is preaching to the church. In the first century, in this theater, and in every generation that has come between us, God exists in Himself. God defines for the rest of creation what is, how it is, why it is, and He defines for all of creation what love looks like. In the words of Boston, it is more than a feeling. God's love is active, it is costly, but it also has a particular direction. God's love is always moving toward what is best for us as His people. Not always what's easiest, not always what's most pleasant, but what is deeply and truly best for us. And so John says, do not label whatever you like, whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you feel warmest. Call that love and say, God must be like this thing I have invented. He didn't write to us on God's behalf and say, look guys, do whatever you think is loving. Let your conscience be your guide. And in the end, it's the thought that counts. He described God's love for us in a very particular vein, in a very costly, inconvenient, but deeply robust way. God's love is full. God's love is particular. God's love is specific. God's love exists on His terms. And so the commandments in Scripture, the commandments in these passages to love and to be loving have a shape. And John never apologizes for that. If 
John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In fact, if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how is that loving? How does God's love abide in that person? Saying that you love God, saying that you love his people, saying that you love humanity in general is nice. It isn't actually loving all the time. There are things that we do that in a black and white sense may or may not be loving, and God gets to choose. He has chosen for us what love looks like, and we had to learn it from him. God's love has a shape. God's love is cruciform. It has a cross shape. His love is revealed to us, made known to us, explained and taught to us in the effective death of Christ in our place for our sin. In the deeply inconvenient and costly death of a perfect and sinless Savior for a deeply broken, infinitely sinful and rebellious people. That's what God's love looks like. And so because he laid down his life for us, and because that is the definition and revelation of love, then our love takes a particular direction. It has particular objects. It has a specific shape. As we grow in the fullness of the gospel and resemble Christ more and more, our love resembles his love more and more. Because his love has taken root, it's taken hold, and it is growing in us avenues to extend his love to others. Godly love is sacrificial. It lays down our lives for others. And godly love has boundaries. To be sacrificial over here but completely discompassionate over here isn't loving. To withhold love is disqualifying. Jesus did not love us because we deserved it. He did not love us because we loved him first. He makes, John makes that clear in chapter 4. God's love for us was and is sacrificial. It is costly. It is inconvenient. It is aimed for our good. It isn't twisted. It isn't self-serving. And because of the work of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit, our love is becoming more like His. We are made loving and our love grows, but it grows in particular ways. Because of God's love for us, we now love others, not just out of a debt, not because we owe it, 
not out of dry obligation. Please don't hear me say when, when I say that God's love is active and ours should be active, that it's a dry obedience. That you just have to go through the motions and the actions of doing things that are, I guess, good for people, whatever that means. God's love for us, while costly and inconvenient, is richly effective, affective. It's richly affectionate. Christ ministers His grace to us with real compassion. The embrace of Christ, the belonging that we have in Him, the tender love of the Father, these things are real and deep. God doesn't dryly go through the motions with us. But you have to have both for it to be real love. And so John says for us, this is what love looks like. This is how God has defined love in himself. This is how God has defined love in his creation. This is how God has defined love and what love looks like when it takes root in his church. There is a sacrificial love for others, family, friends, strangers, inside and outside of the church. And if love in any of those venues never costs you anything, you might want to relabel it. If you look at these two passages, you have the personal love of Jesus pictured as his personal sacrifice for us. In chapter 3, Christ is the one who lays down his life. In chapter 4, it's the Father who loves us at the expense of his own Son. I know it sounds odd to say, but it's that one that's most convicting to me. It's that one that feels most sacrificial to me. As much as I will admit I don't like loving you in ways that are personally inconvenient for me, I definitely don't want to love you in ways that are potentially harmful or inconvenient for my children. Think about the pain you endure as parents watching children suffer. While it's pain not personally experienced in the suffering, it is harder to watch a child suffer. It is harder, much harder, to love anyone at the expense of our families. God's love for us as his church has done both. Christ in his personal suffering and the Father in giving his Son to suffer in our place, loving us at the expense, not just of his own convenience, but the expense of his Son. I don't know how to tease all of that out for us. I can think of a few applications in the ways that we treat our families and the church and the way we prioritize them. But without trying to tease all of those things out this morning, I will say that that holds out to me a depth in God's love that I had not thought of before, that I had not imagined. There is a depth and sacrifice 
in the Son giving Himself and the Father giving the Son that I can barely imagine imitating or seeing in myself for any of you. I do love you. I'm striving to love you better, but that's difficult for me to think about. God's love is so deep, so perfectly effective in that it works, so richly and robustly affective in that it is warm and rich in its feeling, in its compassion, in its delight, that I read this passage and wonder if I'm loving it all. I think I like most of you. I'm for most of you. I want good for most of you. I don't love you like this yet. I have met Christians who actually love like this. At least in much larger measure. And I have to say, it baffles me and makes me hopeful all at the same time. A good friend of mine from high school married his girlfriend from college. And they decided that the ministry God called them to was buying land in East Texas and having a ranch where the people could come and live who had aged out of foster care, who had such severe disabilities they could never live on their own. And so they take in or adopt numerous individuals with needs I can barely imagine. And they have kids of their own. They have a marriage of their own, but they have no vacations without these people. They have no date nights without these people. Their kids are not in soccer leagues and baseball teams like my kids are, where they get to go without these people. When they go to sleep at night, all of these people that they have loved so deeply go to sleep a few rooms away. When they wake up in the morning, they wake up to meet the needs of people who will never stop being needy. They have laid down their lives, not in a metaphorical way with a grand gesture. They have laid down their lives in that they have set the right to their own private, self-determined life aside and said, my life will look like this from now on. We will love these people because we have been loved like this. God has loved us richly and deeply and affectionately and in ways that actually affect our needs and take care of us. And so we will love the same way. Apparently, that's what Christian love looks like. That's what Christ's love looked like for us. That's what the Father's love looked like for us. 
And so what John holds out to us is that we have been conquered by God's active and deep love. And now as his church, we fight and conquer, at least in small measure, the effects of the curse in and around us by this type of costly, inconvenient, and sacrificial love. Church, the Lord has loved us richly, so let us love one another. Let us love one another with real affection, at great personal cost, in ways that are convenient and unpleasant and uncomfortable. God has loved us fully, so let us love fully. This is how Christ has loved us, and this is how the love of Christ changes us. Church, you have been loved. Now let us love in sincerity and truth and action. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your deep, rich, and abiding love for us. We thank you for the initiative you took in loving us. You did not wait for us to become pleasant. You did not wait for us to become deserving. You did not wait for us to even show an inkling of love toward you. You loved us while we were your enemies, while we were rebellious and wanted nothing to do with you. You invaded your creation. You invaded our brokenness by sending Christ the Son to come and live and die and rise for us. Lord Jesus, we stand in great awe as we consider the depth of your love, the suffering you endured on our behalf. All to redeem people for yourself and in ourselves we're not worth it. Because of your love we are being remade into your glory. You are taking us as unloving and unlovable people. You have loved us unchangeably. And you are loving us and changing us to make us more loving by your grace. Would you let us see your kindness in the way that we love each other as your church, in the way that we care for each other and celebrate together and grieve together. Let us care for each other when it's inconvenient and when it's costly. Let us love those around us with your grace and your truth and your mercy. And all of these things continue to teach us that your love is not burdensome. Your love is a freedom we have longed for. In your love there is deep satisfaction and joy. Lord Jesus, make these things true of us by the work of your Spirit. Let us see the fullness of your gospel bear more fruit in us. Not for our own boasting, but for our great satisfaction to bolster our assurance and our hope. Ultimately, for your praise, we ask these things Because you love us, you care for us. Amen.